This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. Now then, what have we got this week? Uh, Well, Matt doesn't quite have the weird out of his system yet. Um, So it appears as though we've got a second dose of weird science this week. Is it going to be Twitter or is it going to be ChatGPT? Matt, which is it? Hey, Richard. Well, it's going to be ChatGPT. So well, I've decided. Well, chance of being right. Yeah, exactly. I've decided I'm going to milk uh, this cow before it becomes as commonplace as Word and uh, Excel, as we were talking about last week. Mm. Um, incidentally, on the on the subject of uh, milking cows, we have a story about uh, a floating dairy uh, a little bit later, um, because it's weird and kind of cool. Um, so. Yeah, um, ChatGPT, this is a story that's um, kind of alarming, but kind of isn't at the same time. Uh, It's from the IFL Science website. Uh, It seems that a team of researchers um, from a a number of universities across the uh, US have uh, pre-published a paper uh, that shows that ChatGPT can pass uh, the written part of the medical licensing exam in the US. So, you know, theoretically, chat GPT could be your doctor. Um, now, pre-published, uh, because it's been made public, the paper has been publicly released, but it hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. Mm-hmm. Now, on the surface, I know this sounds quite shocking, uh, basically, what the machine did was uh, answer a number of multiple choice and open-ended questions correctly. Uh, the current uh, pass rate for the exam is a little over 60%. So ChatGPT uh, managed accuracy rates that exceeded 50% and in most cases achieved over 60%. Uh, it wasn't given any additional medical data to uh, pull its answers from, and nor was the model they used trained or tweaked for medical information. Ha, huh. 50 to 60% then. So what exactly then is the pass rate for doctors? Well, it changes every year, but as I said, it's typically around uh, 60%. Now, obviously, to become a licensed doctor, you have to do more than take some exams. You have, you know, um, years and years of the other stuff. That's what Um, I was driving at. (laughs) Yeah. So a borderline student doctor, um, if they were able to figure out a way to do it, could conceivably pass the written exams using chat gpt um and interestingly chat gpt actually outperformed a, a similar machine called pubmed gpt which is a, a neural network that's been trained specifically with uh, biomedical information and that machine only achieved a sort of average around 50.8 percent well below the passing grade which is a little bit worrying so how and and why well the researchers aren't really sure, but the theory that they're going on is that the PubMed GPT um, is, because it's only exposed to um, medical information, it reflects what we see in medicine, that 
things are often contradictory, that the studies can be inconclusive. Language is often non-committal because people don't want to make definitive statements. So when asked to answer a question in a definitive manner, it struggles given the information uh, and the language that it's been fed. Right. Now, the researchers seem to feel that the reverse is the case with ChatGPT. I mean, we've repeated, we've, you know, sorry, we've reported so many times on how ChatGPT is happy to make wrong answers and, you know, just commits to them. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't have any issue with being definitive. So they feel that the inaccuracies from ChatGPT largely stem from the gaps in the medical information that's been made available to it. You mentioned that this isn't about doctors cheating then. No, I mean, there are a couple of different branches um, for me to kind of scoop the low-hanging fruit from here. Um, firstly, this is about the role that AI will probably have in the future of medicine. So this mm. shows that AI has the potential to make those, you know, those initial, those those first diagnoses. Mm. Um as we've mentioned on the show before, I, I forget the um, exact numbers, but most doctors are only able to memorize a tiny percentage of all the medical conditions that somebody might be facing. So the machine would be able to run a patient's symptoms and come out with a kind of a broader list of potential ailments that those symptoms relate to. Now, this isn't to replace a doctor, but it does give additional information that the doctor can then use to make the diagnosis. Yeah. So right. this could definitely speed up that process, especially in emergency rooms or critical situations, um, even in GP clinics, because it would enable you to get from diagnosis to treatment and getting the correct treatment, hopefully a little bit faster. Hmm. Uh, so what's your second club? Well, it's a branch. It's only a club <laughs> once it falls off the tree. Um, the the <laughs> second uh club, if you like, is uh, what we talked about last week. Um, we need to be having these discussions about what we do and don't allow AI to do. We need to have those discussions now. Uh, so do we have to start structuring exams and other kind of accessible tasks in ways that an AI can't correctly answer them, mm -hmm, for example? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that we've seen, especially over the last few years, is this rise of what people call alternative facts. So do we let um, an AI deal with the information and concentrate on teaching people um, critical thinking rather than just giving them data by rote? Because, you know, yeah. you can get data anywhere. Yeah. Uh, we have to think about the roles or, or rather, we have to think about what the roles will be in a decade from now um, when we look at um, what people will be doing and what machines will be doing. Uh, and our education systems should reflect the world that the kids being educated now are going to find themselves in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, And this is increasingly, I think, going to be a, a world where there are overwhelming volumes of contradictory information on tap. And the main job for people is going to be filtering through that information to figure out what is actually true or applicable to that that situation. Mm. And at the moment, you know, it, it kind of feels like we're not doing a very good job of that. So in, in terms of all of these language models, are, are there any other services that are rivaling chat GPT at this point? Well, 
that's kind of one of the interesting things about this, um, because a lot of the focus is on how advanced and how sophisticated chat GPT is. Yeah. Um, now, I got this from a report on the Futurism site. It quotes from an online lecture um, given by Jan LeCun. Um, he's one of the heavyweight names in AI. He's currently the head of AI at Meta, Facebook. Um, he was essentially saying that chat GPT isn't anything new in terms of the technology. Um, the background to it is GPT-3. That's a machine that we've talked about a lot on this show and on other shows on BFM over the, mm -hmm. the last couple of years. Uh, and Lukun mentions that quite a number of companies, including Google and Meta, do have comparable technologies to ChatGPT. Um, where he gives open AI credit is in the way that they package that product. Right. And, yeah. you know, I think that's the key point. He says that they've done a great job of making it look sophisticated and also in putting that flashy package into people's hands in this form of the public beta. Uh, you know, both of us have reported on advances in this kind of technology, but when we've tried to, to try it out, it's always been a hassle because yeah. beta tools uh, are often aimed at developers. So mm -hmm. you actually have to build modules in order to, to run them. You don't often get the kind of quick and easy interface that allows you to play with it that that chat GPT mm. has been provided mm. with. And how important do you think that um, the whole look sophisticated part is? I think it's it's one of those things that's hard to quantify, but easy to see. Um, mm. Because chat GPT is doing all the things that we've reported that neural nets have been doing. But of course, people don't get excited when you just tell them about it. They get excited when they can put their hands on it and try it for yeah. themselves. Yeah. Um, now, some people have also pointed out that that Lukun's position could be a, a kind of sour grapes. Um, Facebook doesn't have anything publicly similar to, to chat GPT at the moment. And of course, Facebook's own scientific data AI didn't survive its public debut. Uh, it was pulled down after a, a few days in, I think, October or November last year. Um, there might be an element of that, but as Lukun points out, with large consumer-based businesses, you know, companies like Facebook and Google, they can't really afford to put out products that just make stuff up, which <laughs> ChatGPT does. Um, with confidence. If, with confidence, yeah. And if they do, then they get pulled offline very quickly, like that scientific AI. Mm. Um, now, OpenAI isn't a consumer-facing company. It doesn't have the same issue. Um, as we've mentioned before, the real experiment for them is us using the tools. You know, we're helping OpenAI build its next language model. And the mistakes that ChatGPT makes are probably more useful and illustrative to the company than the things that it does right. You know, the, mm. the mistakes will be the things that the next iteration doesn't do. Mm. But, you know, um, people do get carried away. I mean, I'm not going to go into this this story too much. You can check it out for yourself. But the uh, Indian billionaire industrialist uh, Gautam Adani, uh, Adani of the Adani Group has been reported as saying that ChatGPT was the kind of water cooler topic at this year's uh, Davos Economic Forum. Um, 
and as he points out, um, this race is already on. Mm. Um, it has a lot of potential, but it also has a, a lot of dangers. And that's true with, you know, any previous generation of, of transformational technology as it mm. is with any future generation. All right. Um, I suppose we should probably get Twitter out of the way before we get to the break. Yeah, it's been a, a relatively quiet few weeks for uh, for Mr. Musk. Um, yeah. Uh, a, apart from that trial that he's got going on over the tweets about taking Tesla private that caused a, a spike and dip in the company's shares. Um, so uh, some shareholders are suing him over that. Um, but that's all stuff that he tweeted before he owned Twitter. Uh, um so this is the the latest uh sort of uh try it and see if it works uh product that uh, that the platform has launched so there's been a, a lot of jostling between users and uh, uh the platform owners for years uh over the algorithmic curation of feeds yeah so twitter has tried out quite a few times algorithmic feeds that serve you a steady diet of the same porridge um you know pre probably because this is a good way to get sponsored posts and messages in front of you but of course a lot of users prefer to see content from the people they follow and yes. they want to see it in a chronological fashion um mm -hmm. You know, I'm still being irritated by a post in my Facebook feed uh, from a friend who watched the movie Black Adam so that uh, I and others like me wouldn't have to. But it's still in my feed. Every time I open Facebook, it's still there after almost a week. It would actually have been less punishing to watch the movie. Um, so, no, you know, this, it would no, uh, no. no, possibly not. No, <laughs> I, I, I managed about 45 seconds through the intro and that was off. Um, I think I think I'll go a little bit further, a minute and a half, I think I got. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. You know, he, I didn't even get to Dwayne Johnson. But anyway, <laughs> there's, there's been this uh, dance between Twitter and users uh, for years how to, you know, program and display the default feed that they see. And I think it was on the 10th of Jan, um, the option to, to call up the chronological feed was disabled. Um, so they replaced latest and recommended with two new tabs for you and following. And mm. it would default to the algorithm, uh, algorithmically based for you tab. Um, mm. I mean, you know, you can just change it, but who's got time to do that? Uh, so really, I guess they're trying to copy um, TikTok. Well, that seems to be uh, the general thinking. That's what I've seen reported a lot. It hasn't been explicitly uh, spelled out. Um, you know, it's weird, you know, Twitter now has an owner that can afford to run it at a loss um, and he's pushing the company to become profitable, whereas the previous owners who needed to make a profit <laughs> didn't ever seem to push it that far. Um, but, you know, it it's probably not possible to make a profit from Twitter without alien uh, alienating and annoying its users. Mm. Uh, I think, as you said, they were probably hoping to create something as addictive and as sticky as the TikTok homepage. But I think that that kind of disregards the platform's content and its users because tweets aren't designed to be sticky. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not dance crazes. 
they are instant memes. Mm. You know, they're designed to be seen and forgotten. And that's not a flaw. That's actually, you know, part of the purpose of the platform. Um, of course, you know, users were complaining about these changes, of course, on Twitter. Um saying that they were receiving a lot of spam in their feeds so obviously creating spam to talk about spam which sounds like very much an elon musk kind of prank uh, but anyway uh, once again it's being rolled back so that the apps will now remember your preference in the future so you can go back to your uh, chronological timeline um, but i think you know we can expect a lot more shenanigans from the uh, mm. the platform over the, the next sort of weeks and months before it twitters silently off into the night. Well, well. And apparently Matt is available via for motivational speeches and team building weekends. Um, more for hire than hired, it seems. Oh, hey, um, that's rude. <laughs> we'll be right back after these messages on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Balanced Frank Medium, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back to Matt Splain. I'm Rich Bradbury. Um, so that's AI and Elon Musk out of your system, Matt. Uh, what about, yeah, you mentioned something about a floating dairy thing. Uh, let's call them sea cows. Okay. Um, yeah, because, you know, usually when we talk about sea cows, we mean manatees and, of course, their uh, cute Malaysian cousins, the dugong. Um, mm. But this really is a story about cows at sea, as, as you said. It's a Dutch dairy that floats. Uh, now, as uh, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, as most people are, are aware, a large proportion of the, Nether the Netherlands is below sea level. And as sea levels rise, the country is contemplating abandoning um, swaths of Dutch territory to the North Sea in the hope that it will allow them to, you know, better shore up sea defences elsewhere. Uh, and we've talked about some of the ingenious solutions that the country's architects and urban planners have come up with in order for the population to live with rising tides. Uh, things have included building entire neighbourhoods and even roads on floating platforms that rise up and down their, their stanchions as the tide rises and falls. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of these projects tend to be experimental. Um, you know, there, there might be sort of one neighborhood to, to test it out, or they just exist as concept drawings. Rotterdam's floating farm is a reality. It's a floating micro dairy that's home to 40 cows and produces 750 liters of milk every day. Uh, and the dairy, uh, which is built on a pontoon, basically rises and falls by um, nearly three meters a day with the tide. Now, I know on the face Ooh. of it, <laughs> yeah, Ooh. exactly. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> like those little cow in a can things you, you <laughs> exactly used to buy that. on holiday. Yeah. yeah, yeah, tip it up and move. Um, I, I know on the uh, face of it, it sounds a, a little bit 
horrific. Um, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit like Waterworld if you've seen or heard of that movie. Um, and you kind of expect Kevin Costner or Dennis Hopper to to appear and start biting over cheese. <laughs> Wait, hang on. Um, so do the cows, they don't spend their entire lives at sea, surely? No, uh, and no one is trying to genetically engineer gills for them either, like Waterworld. Um, there is an adjacent meadow where they're free to, to roam. They have a gangplank that they can just go uh, up and down at will. Um, on the one hand, the farmers experiment to show how we can adapt to changes in the world uh, around us. And mm. Rotterdam, of course, is a pioneer of living on and with water. So the idea for the farm came uh, to its owners, who are a couple called the uh, Van Vingerdens. We'll call them the VWs because that's going to be easier for me to say. Um, uh. It came to them after they visited the east coast of the US after Hurricane Sandy. So the VWs saw firsthand how flooding can in, uh, inhibit uh, the availability and distribution of food. Right. Um, you know, a, a major issue in countries that uh, have uh, industrialized and centralized their food production and processing um, is this issue of distribution. So we saw how COVID outbreaks at a handful of meat processing plants in the US led to nationwide shortages because mm -hmm. that small number of plants supplied you know, half a continent. Mm -hmm. um, and there's been an explosion uh, uh, in the growth of urban and vertical farming over the past few years as a result of this centralization. Uh, so Think City, which is a, a not-for-profit based in Malaysia, they have an urban farm project that they run in Penang, which helps to provide fresh produce for B40 communities in the, in the city. Um, but obviously, although food supplies like this can help provide kind of local self-sufficiency in cases of emergency, those supplies can also be at risk from those same localized events, whether they're climate events or disasters. So the answer then is floating farms that you can move. Well, yeah. I mean, whenever we hear about extreme flooding events, as part of the reports, we get, you know, they'll tell us the number of people missing, injured and yeah. displaced. Yeah. And Tucked into those statistics will be horrendous numbers of domestic and farm animals that were too big to be rescued. So it's like, you know, half a dozen people have died, but 20,000 cows have drowned. Or, right, you know, you, right. you hear these horrifying statistics. And, you know, you can't put a cow in a rowing boat. But if the place that the animals live is already a floating platform, you can potentially tow it to a place that's more secure. Yeah. Not yeah. Not just protecting the animals, saving the animals' lives, but moving those food production sources to the edge of the emergency zone, close to where it will actually meet the needs of the people who've been displaced. But how sustainable is this kind of farming? Um, a lot of people might even imagine the cow's waste being thrown into the sea, for example, which, well, you know, if you've ever been to Port Dixon... <laughs> I say nothing, um, but yeah, no, I can I can imagine that that people might think that because you've got cows standing on this platform, you think, well, is it all just going to be washed straight out? So the answer to right. that is no. the The core idea of this is built around sustainability. Um, so at the one end, you've got lower carbon emissions because 
you know, you've got your food being produced in the heart of the community. So you don't have uh, the transport and the, the processing uh, requirements. Um, mm. It's all on site. Uh, you have less pressure on um, land uh, because the cows have access to this adjacent pasture land, but they're housed and all the facilities for the farm are on, you know, this floating island in the water. Um, below the barn is actually a milk processing unit. Um, underneath that, there's a store where uh, wheels of cheese are housed and aged. Uh, the manure is processed for fertilizer, which again is used locally. Uh, so the Rotterdam farm sends manure to local soccer fields. In return, it gets their grass clippings, which they use as feed for the herd. Uh, wow. They have, yeah, they have uh, water desalination and purification on site as well. So that takes seawater and rainwater and makes it potable for the cows. So it's built with this principle of circular economies that serve local communities. Yeah. Uh, the team behind the farm is also working on a floating vegetable farm that will sit alongside the dairy. Um, I, I got this story uh, from The Guardian, by the way, so links as ever in the, the show notes. But the idea seems to be taking off. Apparently, there are plans for floating farms now in Singapore, in Dubai, um, and in other parts of Holland. So, yeah, the sea cows are coming. Yeah, and it seems um, robots are, if, if anything from this next story is to be believed. Have I ever lied to you or this audience? It, it, that's a loaded question, and I don't feel the need to answer that. Neither do I. Um, Does Malaysia well, have <laughs> an equivalent of uh, taking the fifth? <laughs> maybe. Let's leave it in a maybe. maybe. All right. Well, um, we make a, a lot of tired uh, Skynet dad jokes on this show, or at least I do. Um, but part of the reason for that is because Terminator was quite a horrifying idea for a lot of people. So when uh, Terminator 2 introduced the liquid metal T-1000 that could shapeshift, it kind of moved the goalposts for how the future can scare us because the army yeah. Terminator is scary enough, but a shape-shifting liquid metal killing machine, wow, that's really frightening. Um, so I'm pleased to announce that the T-1000 is finally here uh, <laughs> i've i've been waiting a long long time for this because world domination is finally within my grasp um i, I shouldn't have said that out loud um yeah, genuinely maybe not. <laughs> no um genuinely though this is a shape-shifting robot that can liquefy and reform itself um this was created by a research team at uh, carnegie mellon university um you you have to Google this to, I'm to already see the on videos. It. I'm already yeah. on it. Um, I, I found the story at New Scientist, but it's on plenty of sites. So the team built a robot in the shape of a Lego minifigure, because why not? And the video shows it behind the bars of a cage. It then liquefies itself, pours itself out of the cage, and then no. resumes its minifigure shape. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. No, I'm just watching the GIF now. No. It, that's terrifying. You've just heard Richard reacting live to a GIF on radio. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. So, wait, how, how big is this then? 
Well, I mean, um, we can, obviously I can see the shape, but yeah, how? yeah. I mean that, that's that's a good question to ask. Um, unfortunately for me, anyway, it's tiny. It's only about one millimeter tall, I think. Ah, well, um, now I feel now I can breathe. A yeah, sigh of you feel a bit better. Um, but you know, yeah. I could still do some damage if I had enough of them. So I'm thinking yeah. of uh, starting a, a GoFundMe page. Um, uh-huh. Mini figs aside, it's actually intended as a small tool that can be used to make repairs. So one of the examples that I think New Scientist quotes is that it could potentially be used in space. So yeah. if you had a, a missing yeah, yeah. screw on the outside structure, uh, you wouldn't have to send someone out to do a, a spacewalk. You just send out this little trickling robot and it liquefies itself and replaces the screw in the in the hole. But being able to shapeshift also makes them adaptable to different circumstances because by adjusting the balance of solid and liquid in its body, the machine can work in different pressure environments. It can adjust the amount of uh, strength that its form has. Uh, And that will also enable it to adapt to different tasks within that same sort of sphere of operation. Mm. And that's something that traditional robots struggle with. Mm. Uh, For example, you know, we have medical robots that are small and flexible enough to work inside the human body. Um, So one of the experiments the team did was with an artificial stomach. So the idea is that the machine could remove toxins or objects that had been swallowed by someone. The machine crawls inside the person, crawls inside the stomach. Uh, It finds the target object. It then liquefies itself and essentially just wraps itself around the object. I mean, if you've seen the film The Blob, you uh-huh. get an idea of what I'm I'm talking yeah. about. And then yeah. once it's wrapped the object, then it simply extricates itself from uh, the person. Uh, and while it's doing that, of course, if if the thing that it's wrapped itself around is toxic, it's no longer able to leach those harmful toxins into the person who swallowed it. That's the most polite way of describing a bodily movement I think I've heard on radio. Oh, well, no, I, well I, I think it would probably come back out the mouth. Or, or uh, thank you very much for that. I'm now having nightmares of alien. <laughs> but also, just to go back, just just quickly, I'm thinking you know, that bit you talked about space and you know repair work in space. You know, can you imagine if you've got all of these liquefied robots acting as screws, right? And then the company, you defaulted on your payment for these this company. And they just go, okay. They push a button, all these little screws go, beep, 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 and off you go. There's your little things floating around in space because you didn't pay your bills. Well, thank you for releasing my franchise model to the world. <laughs> right, anyway. Right, so of course we've gone straight for the clickbaity, horrifying the masses kind of angle uh, without really – talking about how it works. Well, you've just come up with the most horrific angle of them all, so don't <laughs> criticise me. But um, no, it is, a, it is a, a valid point. So the machine is made uh, mostly from gallium, which is a, a liquid metal. Uh, it's infused with microsop- uh, microscopic particles of a magnetic material that is uh, made from neodymium, boron, and uh, good old iron. Now, we've covered these kind of magnetic robots in the past, including um, robots that can be guided around inside a a vein or whatever Mm, using mm. external magnetic forces. (laughs) Additionally, in uh, this case, the magnetic field will shift the robot from 
kind of liquid to, to solid. So the robot can be stretched and pulled and even made to jump by varying the magnets that are applied to it. Huh. Um, but you can also melt it. So I mentioned the, the screws. It can also perform tasks like soldering. So by applying an alternating magnetic field, the electrons in the metal produce uh, electric current that generates heat, which then causes the, the metal to melt rather than, than liquefy. Yeah. So there's another video which shows two of these tiny robots carry, uh, carrying an LED bulb across a printed circuit. They secure the bulb in place on its mounting points, and then they solder it and uh, secure and create the circuit by melting onto the connection point at which point the bulb then lights up so you see this thing moving across the circuit board you then see the robots melting onto the mounting points and then the bulb lights up um unfortunately for me as you can see this technology isn't designed to be built big it's not designed to take over the world um it's designed for ta uh, for people to do or designed to do tasks really that people can't either because of circumstances or because of the scale um but you know that's what they said about skynet so i still have yeah. hope um okay then I'm still a little bit aghast, uh, but what civilization altering or ending item are we ending with today? Uh, yeah, I should have I should have led with the melting robot today rather than chat GPT. <laughs> I think um, civilization uh, altering item uh, comets. So um, oh. over the Chinese New Year break, I clicked on a Gerard Butler movie that was on a streaming platform, oh, and. Dear. Exactly. You know, that's always a risk because Gerard Butler has two kinds of movies. Mm. He has the good ones and he has the ones he does when he has a free weekend. <laughs> so this was definitely one of those free weekend movies. Um, it's called Greenland. Uh -huh. um, Gerard is a structural engineer chosen by the government for relocation to a survival shelter in Greenland to help rebuild civilization after a catastrophic comet collision. Um, uh -huh. Now, the comet turns out to be less of a thing than it is actually a cloud of um, billions of smaller rocks that, you know, start hitting everywhere across the world. Um, these aren't spoilers, by the way, because the movie plays out exactly as you imagine it does. <laughs> Whatever idea you have for the movie in your head right now, that is it. Mm -hmm. um, but imagine my shock when I see a piece on futurism this week that says scientists have found asteroids that are essentially these same swarms of rocks. So that that asteroid defense idea that we have of deflecting an asteroid by hitting it with a missile or splitting it or deflecting its course might need to be rethought, uh, especially after NASA's successful um, double asteroid reduction test, the DART test, which we covered on a previous Weird yeah. Science late last year. Um, the piece is based on analysis of an asteroid called Itokawa, which was surveyed by the Japanese space agency's Hayabusa 1 probe back in 2005. Um, Itokawa is a rock pile, uh, rock pile. So it is this collection of, you know, densely, or not really densely packed, but just, you know, collected rocks that just move with this kind of unity. And it was previously thought that asteroids like this 
would only remain cohesive for a few hundred thousand years. But it appears that Itokawa may be billions of years old. Um, and it seems that because of all the space between the different rocks, it creates this kind of cushion that makes it very hard to destroy the cluster or even disperse it. And that's what we're ending with. Well, nearly. Um, so just <laughs> oh, before recording more. this... Um, <laughs> I read a new scientist report that a delivery truck-sized asteroid will have just passed the Earth when this is broadcast on Friday morning. Um, NASA's Scout Impact Assessment System has ruled out any chance of it hitting the planet. Um, of and course they said, have to say that. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Um, but even if it did, they said, as they said in Greenland, uh, most of it would burn up in the approach to our atmosphere. So if you get an invite to Greenland, um, but you'd you'd see a, a lovely uh, a meteor shower. But this is uh, notable because it's one of the closest passes of an asteroid ever recorded. At the closest point, which will be above the southern tip of South America, it will pass at about three thousand six hundred kilometers above the Earth. Um, to give you the, the context of that, so most satellites uh, in a, a low Earth orbit uh, are, range from around 160 kilometers to 2,000 kilometers. So okay. it's actually not that much further out than yeah, yeah. a lot of the, the, the satellites we put out. So why does this connect to the previous story? Well, it was only detected last Saturday. What? Yes. <laughs> and it wasn't detected by NASA or another national agency. It was detected by an amateur astronomer in Crimea. It's believed to be between 11 feet and 28 feet across. But this goes to show you the difficulty of spotting objects in the vastness of mm. space. You mm. know, we have all these expensive systems. We have these national space agencies, these defense uh, forces. But an asteroid that is possibly the closest that we've yet recorded uh, coming to Earth was only spotted by a hobbyist a week before it was due to pass, rather than by the people employed to safeguard the planet. And uh, that's what I'm ending on. I, I, I don't know where to go. This show has excited and terrified me in equal doses this week. Yeah, I, th I think the first half bored people and the second half has kind of terrified them away. <laughs> Always save your best until last, man. That's what they say, right? Thanks very much for that, Matt, as usual. My now, um, if you missed any part of this show, as usual, you can download the podcast from wherever you normally get it from. We recommend the BFM app. That's available in the Apple App Store and Google Play. And if you want to follow Matt, um, he's over at... Uh, you can follow my newsletter, culturepop.substack.com. There you go. For uh, Matt Splain here on BFM 89.9, I've been Rich Bradbury. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.